Father, as we see in this text, your goodness to us is immeasurable. And, uh, to be called your people when we were once not your people, and to know that we've received mercy when we had not received mercy. That's a privilege and a joy for us. You've made us yours, even we Gentiles are yours. We've been made your sons and daughters. You've built us up on that cornerstone, Jesus Christ. According to your great mercy, you've caused us to be born again to a living hope. You've chosen us out of this world to be yours, not of any merit within us, not of any ability within us, but of your own good pleasure. How great you are. We're thankful. Open our eyes now by the power of the Holy Spirit to see an ever more clear picture of, of your excellencies and that we might then bear witness and proclaim them as well. In the name of Jesus I ask, Amen. amen. Let's stand and read God's Word together. First Peter 2, 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that by him you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. One time when I recently graduated seminary, I was sitting out. We had this like garage thing with a couch where we could look out. I was sitting out there with my pastor, and I was telling him, kind of, I feel like I've lost a bit of my identity since I left seminary. Seminary was this intense three-year thing, and it had become just a part of who I was. I was a seminary student. Of course, he, he corrected me and said, well, your identity is in Christ. I knew that, of course. I just graduated seminary, but I wanted him to commiserate with me a little bit and feel my, my sin. But, uh, of course, he was right. My identity was and is in Christ. Um, and identity is something that's important to all of us. And it's something that's difficult to come by. By identity, we kind of define who we are and the things we do. Um, you know, our occupation can be that for us. You know, me as a pastor or as a wood guy, I, those are things that make me who I am. Or maybe we can define ourselves by the country we live in. We are Americans and we're proud of it. Or our family, we can identify ourselves by our family, who we come from. Or our personality, you know, some people are into those tests, the Myers-Briggs tests, and, well, I'm this introvert, so I am this, you know, um, and that can identify us. And whatever it is, those things we use to identify ourselves, usually those things revolve around us. There are things that we are, there are things that we do. And even Christianity sometimes can become something we have done, something we participate in, a movement we identify with. I was talking to somebody recently, and I kind of rejoiced in my heart with him, but I, I cringed a little bit because he talked about his friend who just got rebaptized to kind of redeclare his love for Christ. I, I didn't correct him on his view of baptism. 
But in modern kind of evangelicalism, that's what baptism is, is it's a personal declaration of my commitment to Christ. So even Christianity is this kind of thing that we do. And of course, it's far from wrong to make a personal declaration of our allegiance to Christ. In fact, we have to do that. Uh, But the point I'm driving at here is that true Christian identity is found not in who we are or the things we do, but in who God is and the things He does. So Peter here helps us out. He describes the believer with four kind of identifying markers. Uh, And we can plainly see as we go through them that these are things that God does in and for us. These designations appear to be, according to most commentators, I I agree with them, that they are drawn from two primary Old Testament texts. And we'll be kind of in them some today, so if we go there, you can put your finger there or bookmark. But uh, the first is Isaiah 43, and the second is Exodus 19. And kind of a side note, but an important side note, as we look at these, you'll see that Peter assumes these these promises, these these identifying markers that are applied to the Israelites are applied directly one-to-one with the church. So the, the side note is, uh, Peter did not view the church age as a parenthesis. Or he, he did not view Israel and the church as two distinct peoples of God. So notice that kind of as we go through. So the aside, aside... Uh, the first identifying designation is that we are a chosen race. This kind of comes as an allusion from Isaiah 43. Here in Isaiah 43, God kind of he identifies himself, Yahweh, as the Savior of his people. He's the one who will save them from their exile in Babylon. In verses 20 through 21... God says, The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches. For I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people. It's the same words that are used in First Peter, chosen people. The people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. Yeah, Isaiah 43, 20 and 21. So here, again, God is promising to save his chosen people out of that Babylonian exile. And all through First Peter, Peter uses these kind of exilic themes, both from Exodus and from the Babylonian captivity, and applies them to his readers. Because his readers are in a similar state of that kind of alienation and exile. God always promised to bring his people out of the desert, out of exile, and precisely because they were his chosen people. And Peter applies those images to the New Testament Christian because we are no less God's chosen people than Israel was. And he will not leave us to perish in this, this desert season. He will not let us wait forever in exile. So Jonathan Edwards here argues two points in his sermon on this uh, text from chosen race. And, and they're actually kind of obvious. The first is that we're chosen And the second is that we're a race. (laughs) But he says it so much more beautifully, so I'm stealing his. He says, first, that true Christians are chosen by God from the rest of the world to be his. And second, God's people 
are of a peculiar descent and pedigree different from all the world besides. The election is and always has been a fundamental marker of the people of God. For example, Deuteronomy 7, God says to them, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any of the other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chosen you, for you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. So the doctrine of election is not something to hide away in a closet. It's foundational to who we are and to what God has done for us. It's something that we should happily take on as part of our identity. Now we're of course not supposed to think that God chose us as you know one kid would choose another kid for a dodgeball team. That's a selection based on merit and ability. God has not chosen His people based on ability or merit. But but we should kind of wear the badge of election in plain sight, but in humility, because we know we didn't earn the badge, but He's lovingly given it to us. Peter also calls us a race, a chosen race. So in Isaiah's time, when he wrote these words, he was talking to a race, Abraham's children. People write, or Peter writes to the people of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And yet he says, you are a chosen race. A race is usually a group of people who share common ancestry. So how can we say that we are a race, a single race? A.T. Robertson defines race like this. He says, it's the blood relation of the spiritual Israel, not the Jewish race, through the new birth. So in other words, when we're born again, we're born into God's family. We share the common ancestor. We have a single father. And so we constitute, as believers, a single race. Now that we are a chosen race, that that idea should impact our perception of our identity um, quite a bit. So I have two ways of what could be many here, briefly. And the first is that racism can't exist in the church of Jesus Christ. Uh, There's a diversity of culture and ethnicity in the church, and it should be recognized, celebrated. That's one of the things that's rejoiced in Revelation, God. All the people before the throne, the different types of people. But for anyone to take pride in a particular race that runs contrary to the gospel. Uh, The second thing is that our bloodline doesn't qualify us more or less to be members of God's chosen race. Jesus was not impressed that the Pharisees were children of Abraham. So it doesn't matter who we're descended from, how important they've been in society, or even how important they've been in the church. God chooses His people. Our identity is not in who we are, but in who God has made us. Okay, the next one. We are a royal priesthood. A royal priesthood. This one's drawn from Exodus 19 directly. It's a direct quote. 
this one and the following. The context is they're going through the wilderness and they come to Mount Sinai and God calls Moses to come up to Mount Sinai. In 19.3-6, While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. For the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So the first thing I notice about this text is that it's a conditional promise to them. If you will keep my covenant, if you will obey my voice, then I will make you a nation and priests. But Peter here assumes it as a reality, a present reality for his readers. Which tells me that the promise is fulfilled. And based on the merit of Christ, we are now a royal priesthood. Christ obeyed God's command and He kept His covenant. And now we, as born-again believers, united to Him in faith, are defined as the royal priesthood. But what is this royal priesthood? Some, and I think this is odd, but some think that is kind of the relationship that we as God's covenant people have with the, the nations, that we somehow have authority now to <laughs> mediate between the, the nations and God. Um, this view doesn't make a lot of sense to me. God isn't in relationship in, with the world in that way. Um, it, it is our job to prophetically proclaim the truth to the, to the nations, but that's not a priestly role. So maybe I'm missing something there, but I don't understand that perspective. But I think D.A. Carson gets it right here. He says, most importantly, both in Exodus 19 and 1 Peter 2, the notion of a royal priesthood has less to do with establishing the authority of the covenant people of God, old covenant or new, than with the themes of obedience, holiness, privilege, mission, self-identity, under the good purposes of God. So in other words, the, the term royal priesthood refers to God setting aside a people who worship Him in spirit and in truth and who offer spiritual sacrifices to the King of the universe. So we're priestly because we've been consecrated for that purpose and we're royal because we're set apart unto the King of the universe. The next designation here kind of carries a similar theme and it's from the same sentence in Exodus 19. And that theme is that of being set apart unto God. Uh, verse 6 of 19 again. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So again, through Christ this is not a conditional promise, but a realized status. When the Israelites received this promise, they were kind of this struggling band of vagabonds trying to become an established nation on their way to the promised land. Uh, but Peter applies this to believers as though we are already an established nation. The holiness here is not so much a description of, of our moral purity as it is, but again of consecration unto the Lord. We are a nation set apart 
unto God Himself. This description, of course, would have been a comfort to Peter's audience. If you remember, they likely or possibly were living as aliens, kind of deported from their own home country, and they don't have their country anymore. They're not in their homes. They're living in foreign lands. So we can imagine kind of the identity crisis we might face if we were placed in a foreign country or even worse, California. (laughs) But as I mentioned last week, we do feel it even now as we kind of pass through this life as aliens and sojourners as Christians. And what a balm to the soul it is to know that our true citizenship isn't here, but it's in God's holy nation. Hebrews 11 is great here. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they could have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a holy city. Isn't that comforting to us who are traveling through this earth as aliens and strangers? Our residence is not ultimately in that earthly city, but in the city of God. And praise God for that, because this earthly city will always fail us, and it will always cast us off as foreigners. But we need not have an identity crisis, because we know where we belong. We have an unshakable identity. Fourth one, the fourth designation, that is, we are a particular people, or what the ESV calls a people for God's own possession so the phrase translated literally doesn't say God's possession it just says a particular or a special people or in the old translations a peculiar people which we already know we're peculiar (laughs) Uh, A.T. Robertson again is helpful here he says that this phrase means a people above others or a possession with a, in a special sense. He, he goes on to say that the old rendering of peculiar people has this idea of possession because peculiar comes from this Latin word pecus, which means Latin, is Latin for flock. And so that kind of makes me think of the branding iron on the cattle, like cattle or, or sheep are marked off as a special group that belong to the rancher or to the shepherd. So this designation, uh, people of God's own possession, is obvious in both of these Old Testament texts we've looked at in Isaiah and Exodus, even though the exact wording isn't found in either one. Um, So Exodus first, he says in verse 5, Exodus 19, 5, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. In Isaiah 43, again, uh, verse 21, he calls them the people whom I formed for myself, that they may declare my praise. So, we are God's people for God's sake. Which really, I think, kind of gets at the heart of all four of these designations. I, I, 
maybe you've noticed already, but there's a theme running through all of them, and that is essentially they say all the thing, same thing from the different angle, which is that we are God's people set apart by God for the purpose of God. So Peter established is plainly there that we are God's people. And then he goes on here in verse 9 to tell us, in the second half of verse 9, to tell us God's purpose in making us his people. God has a purpose in making us his people. Verse 9 again, But you are a chosen race, a, whole, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that by him that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That you may proclaim. That is the purpose. From what I understand, this word excellencies, uh, what some translations call praises, uh, carries the idea of kind of moral worth or goodness, glory of God. So our purpose as a people is to proclaim that very goodness, those excellencies and glory of God. That's why He chose us. That's why He separated us out from the world. That's why He gave us eyes to see and ears to hear. That's why He caused us to be born again to a living hope. So that we could see His glory and keep it to ourselves. Now, upon seeing, proclaim it. I think Psalm 45 is kind of a wonderful example of this. I was going to try to pick out one verse, and really the whole thing is great, but I'll just read 12. I stopped myself at 12. But it's really a good example of this. Psalm 145, 1 through 12. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power, to make known to the children of men your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. As I said, we could go on. The whole psalm is just him extolling God for all that he has done and all that he is. Um, but the psalmist here, notice how he reacts. He says, wow, look at the glorious works of God. Look at what he's done. Look at his mercy. Look at his wonderful deeds. And his response that goes hand in hand with the seeing is he must extol God. He says, one generation must tell the next one. Each generation shall pour forth the fame of his abundant goodness. So surely then we must see that each one of us must open our mouth and proclaim the goodness and glory of God. We need to pass it on from one generation to the next. We need to share it among one another and as it says, sing about it, rejoice in it. 
And we need to tell our unbelieving neighbors and friends about it. But not only do we individuals need to do this thing, but, but God's purpose in making us a people, the church, is also in view here. The, the whole church, what, the church is to be engaged in mercy ministry, helping people. That's not the primary purpose for our existence. You know, we, we can help people, we can help them see personal transformation, we can help them be free of addiction maybe, help them lead their families well, help them contribute in society, but those things are not the church's primary purpose. Primarily what the church is to bring to the world is a message. The church is a people primarily of proclamation. So whether within our walls or or out there, our tune really should be the same and echo that of Paul in Romans 11. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and the knowledge of God. Oh, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. So why have we been made the people of God? We are God's people set apart by God for the purposes of God that we might proclaim the excellencies of God. Peter here concludes... This, these two verses by proclaiming himself the glory and goodness of God in saving us uh, and thus he, he motivates us to also proclaim so verse 10 once you were not a people but now you are God's people once you had not received mercy but now you have received mercy that's a remarkable verse in and of itself it, it should provoke our praise and our proclamation but to me it's even more wonderful when we see that Peter here is using Hosea and the themes of Hosea as his backdrop so we know the story of Hosea Um, God makes his prophets do the weirdest stuff all the time Uh, he, he communicates these through images and he makes them do the worst stuff Walking around naked for a long time, roasting food over dung. You know, go hide your undies in the riverbank. It's weird. But I think uh, Hosea, if I had to choose, I would not, uh, Hosea would be my last choice. I think he had it the worst. God, God says to him, you know, look, my people are adulter- adulterous. They're constantly leaving me for other gods. They're harlots. So you're going to go and you're going to marry a harlot. And she's even going to be named Gomer to boot. She will not be faithful to you, but you will be faithful to her. This is a picture of the sin of God's people and God's faithfulness to them. So Hosea marries Gomer. She bears him a daughter. And her name is Lo-Rahuma, which means no mercy. Then she conceives a son. The Lord says, Name him Lo-Ami, not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. Painful words, difficult words. But God doesn't leave him without hope. In verse 10, 
He says, Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God. And in verse uh, chapter 2, God goes on and gives this glorious promise, chapter 2, 19 through 23. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain the wine and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow for her myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to my people, You are my people, and you shall say, You are my God. So this is the astounding promise applied directly to us by Peter in First Peter chapter 2. Uh, Paul also applies it to us in a way that's helpful in Romans 9. He says, What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom He has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed He has said in Hosea, Those who were not My people... I will call my people, and her who is not my beloved, I will call my beloved. And everywhere, and in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called the sons of the living God. So the way it appears that these New Testament writers apply this is, even we Gentiles, we were once not the people of God. We were once as vessels of wrath. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raises us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We who were not God's people are God's people. We who had not received mercy have received mercy. So if, if this is not cause to extol the excellencies of he who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light, nothing is. So I'll conclude with this. Of all the identities, those identities that we center ourselves around, that we maintain, chief among them needs to be God's people set apart by God for the purposes of God that we might proclaim the glories of God. Whatever else we are in this world is subservient to that identity. We are a chosen race, a holy nation, a people set for his own possession that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once we were not a people, but now we are God's people. Once we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. Amen. Praise God. Amen. All right. Well, we're going to sing a new song.
I was relying on my wife's piano skills to help me do it. We will do our best. (laughs) So, hymn number 355. Maybe it's not new. We are God's people. Oh, here she is. <laughs> 